Welcome to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast, the podcast for serious soccer players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their soccer careers. And now, here's your host, Matt Langoni. Welcome to another episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Today I'll be joined by New England Soccer Journal contributor Jonathan Siegel. Hey Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time today. Hey man, glad to chat. It's been a long time coming and I'm glad to have college soccer back and we finally have some games to talk about, some players, some results. That's what we all want. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know our listeners are obviously quite familiar with Jonathan's work. He's been affiliated with New England Soccer Journal for a long time. And one of his great areas of expertise in a, in a part of a, a large plethora of areas of expertise for Jonathan is Division Three soccer. And that's what we're going to talk about today, both kind of the men's and women's landscape. And Jonathan, in your estimation, when did Division Three soccer become such a juggernaut in this region? Has it been a long time, or has this been like kind of a, a slow build to what it is right now, where it's probably the you know the top area of the country? Definitely longer than I think most people realize and appreciate. There's some legendary coaches who defined what's called the platform for the current NESCAC on both men's and women's sides that we see now. I think what's so unprecedented is especially on the men's side, and I'm hoping I get this right, I'm actually going to check in the background to make sure. I think a New England team, especially in the NESCAC, has won a national title every year since 2014. Um, that's split across Tufts, Amherst, and then Conn College this past year, of course, too. And Brandeis, non-NESCAC, had a couple of fantastic runs into the Final Four under from former head coach Mike Coven. On the women's side, Wesleyan made a Final Four this past fall. Um, Williams won, a, won three titles as well, if I'm not mistaken. I think one was over Middlebury. So it's a dual NESCAC matchup again in the national championship. And MIT on the women's side is pushing for that, I think, that tier as well. So I think there is the risk of being too caught up in the moment of enjoying the success currently without realizing, hey, there's a lot of fantastic coaches and, and players that kind of paved the way for what we see today, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny. <laughs> Division three is always like, you know, everyone has that aspiration, players growing up of playing division one soccer and division three. I mean, the, the level of play is outstanding, as anyone who's watched uh, would know. Do you feel like there's no longer or, or do you think there was ever a stigma about playing division three sports that, you know, were just settling and it wasn't that high quality? And do you think that stigma has been erased if there was one? Because, you know, the, the quality is just exceptional right now. I think it's different on the men's and women's sides. And I, I could talk about this for hours, but I'll try to give a short version. Where <laughs> I, That's why we I want think it. On the men's side, yeah, exactly. I, I think on the men's side, what's unique is, first off, there are fewer D1 programs on the men's side than on the women's side for college soccer. So there are fewer opportunities, therefore, to play D1 men's soccer. Especially here in New England, I think there's the really heightened appreciation for the level of play and also more importantly, perhaps what that D3 experience entails, meaning the academic platform it provides at some fantastic schools, frankly, the opportunity to study abroad, the opportunity to not have your entire year defined by being on a college team and exploring some different things. So it's not the same D1 that you can't do those things, but certainly it's a lot more regimented. And I think on the women's side, it's a little bit 
different just because conversely from a numbers game, there are more D1 programs for, for women's players and there are more therefore scholarship opportunities that come with that. So it's a little bit not quite one-to-one as a ratio there. But I think from a pure on the field perspective, yeah, I mean, this is probably the age old debate of like how many D1 players could come into a D3 game and dominate. Not as many as I think those D1 players would like to think. And conversely, how many D3 players could go step into a high level D2 or D1 game and really exert themselves? I I think at the top teams, it's maybe a collection of five or six players. And, and I think that's the key to those, those college recruiting battles these coaches are leading is how many of those, let's call it tier one players for a D3 school can you get? And that's kind of what provides, I think, that high level that we see so often. But even then, I mean, I I would just add on as one more thought. I I think the D3 game has developed a reputation, I think deservedly so, of being very physical. There are elements of that where it's maybe not the most beautiful game at times. It's not quite Joga Benito out there to use a Brazilian phrase. But at the same time, there's there's quality players. And I just would conclude with saying anyone who thinks otherwise, that's an unfair and just frankly not true assessment of what are some fantastic players who are realistic about what they want their college soccer experience to entail. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I've talked to numerous players uh, when they have committed to a Division three program about why Ultimately, you know, and you ask them what, where they're considering and there's some D1s in there, there's some D3s in there, and, and they ultimately choose a D3. And part of that decision comes down to, you know, I love soccer. I want to continue playing soccer, but I don't necessarily want it to define the next four years of my life and just be all I do, train and play. And, the, and just the the commitment and rigors of playing Division One soccer that just captivates your, your entire life. So I think that's a great point because – you're still going to get that high quality and that uh, yet incredible education, but you'll have other outlets to, to explore as well. Yeah, and I just add on to that. I mean, I say this as someone who spent a year of playing D3 soccer at Clark University before transferring to BU, and I have no shame at admitting I was nowhere near good enough to play at BU. <laughs> coach, coach, former coach Neil Roberts would, would agree with that statement too. But at the same time, like, I, I think there's a realistic element here of, hey, what does that look like for soccer? For my aspirations that's not the poor rain or ran at anyone's parade of wanting to play pro there are those pathways i think the level of the new england player is increasing for multiple reasons not the different longer conversation as well but at the same time i mean let's be honest after you graduate college for most people your your soccer playing days are winding down and there's nothing wrong with that that's that's how it goes this is an institutionalized version of what kind of that pathway and career looks like and and personally, like I said, from my own background, I commend when players at a young age, 16, 17, 18, when they're thinking about the, that decision, do they have the wherewithal and the people in their corner providing solid advice to say, hey, let's take a realistic assessment of what you want out of this and what that means for not just your next four years of college, to use a cliched phrase, but your next 40 years of life. And, and try not to be caught up in that small window of saying, oh, I played D1 at the expense of the longer view of what that means, like I said, for your life, all the way through whatever that entails. Right. Let's let's zero in on the region and, and the landscape here in New England. And we touched on the NESCAC a little bit, and everyone knows you know, nationwide how strong the conference is. What is it, do you think, about the league that enables programs within it to attract players from all over the country? I mean, that's one advantage, I think, that 
the con colleges have and, and the Wesleyans and, and Amherst and, and whatnot, they, they are able to attract kind of this, this global roster that allows it to compete at such a high level. But what do you, what do you think it is that's, that's allowed for that to happen? I think it's, there are multiple layers, one of which is the academic profile of the player they tend to recruit. It's very common for those players to be weighing an Ivy League decision alongside an SCAC decision. I, I remember talking with players with great frequency and they'd rattle off, hey, here's who I was considering. And you can fill in the gaps with, with who those schools will likely be. There's just a lot of carryover there. So, so I think the type of player, the type of person, the type of student that goes to those schools are very, very similar. Yes, there's going to be a difference in terms of who's going to be an all Ivy League player versus an all NESCAC player. And that's not always to say it's Ivy versus NESCAC. There are different iterations that can manifest in across all the different spaces. But I think that's one big part. And then conversely, I, I think there's a growth. I mean, how's the best way to phrase this? I think it's that success prompts interest. Once you're good and you prove that you're good and you prove it over and over again. And you see that environment as a league, as an individual program, as a team culture, as an individual player. People want to be a part of that. They want to join that. They want to make that part of their experience. So sure, imagine a different world where NESCAC teams weren't winning titles. They weren't pushing those deep tournament runs. There'd just naturally be less interest. So I don't know. I'm sure there's more reasons beyond that. But those are, I think, the two big ones that come to mind. and. Um, there's kind of an aura around it too. There, there's a desire to be there. And I would add on, that's not to say at the expense of a, I don't know, let's say on the men's side, like a Babson, a brand, you go down the list with all these other schools that aren't SCACs that are really, really quality. On the woman's side, you could toss in an MIT, uh, a Brandeis, um, the thing is West Con. Like, yeah, there, there's all these different schools that are really great programs. It's all about the right fit, but for sure on the NESCAC, like it's kind of that, I don't know, that, that peak of the mountain, that's that's where everyone understandably looks up to and aspires to. And as you said, like consistently year over year, it's pretty amazing, I think, to watch. Do you feel like going forward, more professional soccer opportunities will present themselves to Division Three players because of, you know, the the growing stature of that division and just how, how how strong the play is and you know you do see division three players transfer to big time division one programs already and, and prove they can belong but do you feel like more pro opportunities will present themselves i think it obviously depends on the level i i say this as someone who now works for major league soccer that i, I would be very surprised to see most player a player come out of a division three school and step onto a first team roster for an mls team i just i think that's highly unlikely at the same time uh, to use a recent example, you see a player like an AJ Marcucci coming out of Con College as a goalie. He's, let's call it the two, three slot on goalkeeper depth chart for the Red Bulls. He's mostly playing for their reserve team, which plays in the USL Championship. Next year, if I'm not mistaken, they'll be in MLS Next Pro, which is our reserve league. So I think you could see players go into that level where it's still a high level of soccer. Um, but let's not mistake ourselves in saying that they're going to be playing alongside the Gareth Bales of the world or the US national team stars and such. So it's just that's understandably probably a leap too far. And even still, that's the D1 level. A lot of those college players struggle to adjust. But at the same time, what we have seen, and some of the names are escaping me off the top of my head, but do you want to go try your hand at third division soccer in Spain for a little bit? Do you want to go play for a second division team in Sweden and spend four years of your life just seeing what comes? There's one name that actually just popped to mind that I should have said. Former Springfield player, Brian Malone, 
playing in the two Bundesliga in Germany. He's crushing it. Like, and that's at a high level. Like, there's some really quality players in that league. And I, I think that's impressive and shows at the peak of it all. Like, yeah, there can be these guys. And also women as well. I don't want to just focus on the men's side of the game where there are opportunities. But I think the right level has to present itself while being realistic about the physical, technical, tactical qualities that those players bring. New England's soccer journals, The Goal, will return after this. Hey, here's a great new idea in fundraising. Soccerhead's New England Comedy Fundraisers. This is better than a stand-up show. It's an event that your community will never forget. You'll get soccer-themed comedy with Paul Nardizzi, who has been on Conan O'Brien, and Nessun Comedy All-Stars, along with Dave Radigan from Sirius Radio Comedy, and Jim Ruberti. There will also be giveaways and all sorts of extras. Want to make money for your soccer club and have fun while doing it? Email the guys at SoccerHeadsNewEngland at gmail.com. That's SoccerHeadsNewEngland at gmail.com. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England soccer? New England Soccer Journal and NESoccerJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England soccer scene. Have every issue of New England Soccer Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to NESoccerJournal.com to receive soccer coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, division one, two, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and so much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to anysoccerjournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Soccer Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. What do you think is the most obvious or glaring differences that separate D1 from D3? I mean, is it is it just as simple as its its pace and speed of play? Or, I mean, is it a physicality? What, what's your estimation of it? I think a big part comes down to the international presence on D1 rosters. I'm sure you've seen this. Like These rosters keep on becoming more and more international with mm-hmm. guys who, frankly, usually they'll have on paper a good resume of, oh, they spent time in Bayern Munich's academy or they spent time in... I don't know, fill in the blank, whatever team in Spain or Italy and so, so forth. Um, but they weren't, for whatever reason, going to make it to the first team. Uh, that just wasn't going to be their future. And they value education. So they come to the States, and they play for these programs. And a lot of D1 coaches are leveraging those opportunities to build out their rosters and build out quality. That then bumps a lot of D3 players, or excuse me, a lot of D1 players to pursue D3 opportunities, in my opinion. There's kind of a, a, a trickle-down effect from there. I, I think... What that has created is at the D1 level, 
a more nuanced in some ways game, a little bit more international flavor. And I think then conversely at the D3 level at times, it's a very, very physical game. It's about power. It's about pace. It can be about set pieces. It's not always about the intricate buildup. That's not to say teams can't. But I think if you were to dial it down into the individual player, more often than not, the D1 player has a certain athletic profile that you're just not going to see at the D3 level. The margins aren't big. They are not at all. Soccer players, you can be the best center mid on the team and be five foot five. You don't have to be obviously a six foot two, one eighty guy who's going to go out there and run a four four forty or whatever it comes out. But I think that's the biggest difference: is the technical ability is not that far apart. The tactical understanding is not that far. There's just a certain athletic profile that really differentiates it, and more so on the men's side, as I mentioned, the international element than on the on the women's side. Both are apparent, and I hope that makes sense because. That's something I experienced as a player myself. And I've heard from a lot of folks too that those are kind of big differences. And I would just add as one more, I think the time you have on the ball to make decisions is a big one. How much pressure are you facing when you receive that ball under pressure in, in the jam-packed situation? And conversely, how frequently and with the right touch, the right weight of pass, the right technique, are you able to make a decision in the final third that's productive? I think the D1 player more often than not makes that right decision. Not to say it's 100% hit rate, but I think the D3 player, maybe they're 70%, maybe they're 60%. So there are nuances in that respect. And you can go dialed into the, I don't know, super soccer nerd level here if you wanted to. <laughs> but I think those are some of the differences that, that manifest. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was actually recently watching with my son, Georgetown and St. John's were on, were on TV recently, a men's match, and he commented during the match just how fast it was, how fast the action was. And, and you know, they were playing on a turf field, so that it was obviously a little faster than a, a natural grass surface, but it, it does stick out to you, even on TV, just the level of pace that that Division One men's match is played at. And it, it's, it's, it's almost striking because, you know, sometimes – you'll watch a professional match and won't even, <laughs> he, he said, this looks faster than a professional match. And I said, yeah, they're, I mean, they're going, they're going hard. They're going full speed and they're challenging hard. And it's just that, that speed and physicality combination is, is remarkable sometimes. I think also too, that gets into the college soccer substitution rule. Exactly. I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to nerd out on, but Hey, if you're a 20 minute forward and you go out there, you're going to go, go all out. Yeah. Yeah. You go all out and then you can get subbed out. I mean, Hey, you have that flexibility, whereas, of course, over a 90-minute pro match, you have to be a little bit more measured, a little right. bit more careful and pick your moments. Absolutely. We're early on in this 2022 season at the Division Three level, but who are some teams that are catching your eye or, you know, on men's or women's side? And are there any results that you've taken note of so far that have been surprising to you? Yeah, it's early. I'll start on the, the, the men's side. I think NESCAC men's soccer. Wesleyan had a really strong year last year. I don't remember the exact number of best records since year X. That, the num- that year escapes me. But they're building off it right now. We'll see. I mean, there's always that, hey, you have your toughest part of the schedule coming up, et cetera. You and I both know how that narrative can go around teams. But that's notable to me. Bowdoin as well on the men's side, they're coming off a win at Con College. That's huge. I mean, if you're able to beat the defending national champions on their own turf, that doesn't happen every day. You don't need to dominate that game. All that matters is the result at the end, to be uh, cliche about it. I think also what's interesting is Tufts, Amherst, 
these are schools that are finding their way for different reasons. Some huge players have graduated from those sides. They've been synonymous with the upper echelon of D3 soccer in New England for so long. I don't think they're going to go anywhere. I, I think that'd be naive and unfair to say that their days are behind them. But let's focus on, hey, tough lose Herman Dremetti, D3 National Player of the Year, transferred to Maryland. How do you figure out your offense? Hey, most of your defense graduated. Who's the new guys on the back line? That doesn't just happen overnight. These things take time. So those are two interesting ones too. I think Khan is going to be fine. I, I think anyone who's worried about what their future looks like is based off one result is, I think that's short-sighted. On the woman's side, I mean, I, I would say that what's interesting is, I think the word's parody on, in Nescaco and soccer. Like Tufts is starting out strong. Middlebury's starting out strong. There, there's nothing weird about that. Williams just bounced back after a couple tough losses. But I don't quite see a powerhouse team in either respect. And I think that's notable. So it's a little bit hard to forecast at this moment in time. But at the same time, I do think that it's an open field. We're going to learn a lot more. We're only two weekends into the NESCAC season. I, I don't want to... I think it's too soon to make hard and fast definitive conclusion. But yeah, those are some... Off the top of my head, quick observations. And I mentioned a few other programs, non-NESCAC, that I think are always worth following. On the men's side, I think in the new Mac, Babson, Wheaton, MIT has been hot in years past, started a little slower. Brandeis is always worth following. Little East, there's always a team or two. GNAC, you have, you have Norwich, you have St. Joseph's in Maine. Like, there's always a sprinkling. The women's side, of course, too, there's a few. There's MIT, there's always going to be them. There's always going to be Brandeis. Yeah, I mean... That's also the beauty of it. There, there's, there's an open field, and geez, we're not even at about the same time. We're, we're talking on September 21st, and I'm like, geez, no, no time has passed. But at the same time, like the D3 soccer season happens fast, and these teams could be over by Halloween. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's it, wild. It's insane. That's some great discipline by you to not go down the road of of hot prediction takes. So I, I, I do, I do agree that like. This early in the season, it's if you had asked Wesleyan women's coach Ava Meredith last year at this time, you know, you think you guys are going to be playing in the final four this year? I don't think she would have gone down that 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 prediction road. So, yeah, I mean, so much has to play out between now and November and early December. It's it's hard to to forecast. A lot of these teams aren't going to be hitting their stride until, you know, mid-October, mid to late October. And you don't want to be you don't want to be peaking in at the end of September. I mean, that's just not the, the way any any program wants to do it. Yeah, and I would add those undefeated teams are close to undefeated of years past. That's not realistic to expect every mm -hmm. year. Meaning Tufts, remarkable runs. And I remember talking to former, well, now Harvard coach Josh Shapiro. And it, it would just be like, look, we'd be stupid to expect this to be replicated every year. And that'd be an unfair expectation on ourselves. And Amherst was almost undefeated last year, if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. on the woman's side, middle, her, excuse me, Williams had a couple close undefeated seasons while they were going on their national title runs, like, sure, it can happen. But yeah, it, it's not the end of the world if you lose a game in mid-September. What, what matters is, of course, peaking, like you said, at the right time. How about some up-and-coming conferences within New England that have, you know, maybe not necessarily at the level of a, of a NESCAC, but some leagues that are producing some really quality soccer and, and have some, some programs on the rise here? Yeah, I've mentioned a couple of them. I think Babson's history on the men's side especially is incredible. Head coach Sean Anderson has been there for, let's just say, a long time. He's, <laughs> he's, he's fantastic. He's 
an institution of D3 soccer, they're always going to be in the hunt. So there's nothing new about that. Any team in New England knows that. I think in to use another school that comes to mind, their, their coach would admit this, Jake Beverlin at UMass Boston. It's always a different mix every year for them for different reasons, whether that's injury, whether that's who's at school, who they recruited, transfers, et cetera. But they're another school that I think is always super interesting to follow just because of the quality they can bring. And the CCC on the men's side, I think Endicott, head coach Joe Calabrese, always does a really good job there. Um, and I don't want to leave anyone out at anyone's expense. But I think Brandeis, they're... They're starting to settle a little bit more under head coach Gabe Margolis, who took over from the legendary Mike Coven. They're doing a good job. And yeah, I mean, you could go down the list, I'm sure, with like six, seven more. And like I said, I don't want to leave anybody out. But then on the woman's side, I mean, anybody who's in the space knows that if you're having a NESCAC-only conversation, you're leaving out arguably the best team at MIT. They do a fantastic job. They, they do. The ability to recruit players to that program for academic reasons, for sport reasons, location, et cetera, is huge. Brandeis, again, does a great job. I mean, you could go, again, down the list, but those are some ones off the top of my head that, that come to mind as just top, top teams. And are they going to push for a national title every year? Who knows? But don't be surprised if, they, if they're knocking off NESCAC teams here and there, too. How much credit do you think, this is obviously a rich area of the country for, for club soccer as well, and how much does it play into it when, when players decide to go the D3 route? Is, is Are those club coaches having honest conversations with their kids and letting them know where the best fit is and, and just letting them know there's you know there's nothing wrong with playing Division three soccer. It's you'll, you'll get a great career. You'll have a great career. You'll get a great education. Do you think the conversations around it have really evolved over the years between players and coaches? I'd say I hope they have. I'm I'm usually an optimistic person. I, I try to look at the bright side of things. And there is going to be that pessimistic voice of, frankly, there's nothing wrong with this. Club soccer programs around here and everywhere in the country, they're businesses unless they have a free-to-play model. Um, and there is something to be said of marketing yourself as a platform to sending players on to D1 and what that means just for what you do and your product and all that comes with that. At the same time, like I said, I, I hope there isn't that narrow-minded approach because I think there is, and I've talked with in the past, club directors, coaches about this. I think there is that openness. Is it a 100% everyone in that mindset? I, I don't think so, but I don't think they're far from it either because there is a recognition of, I don't know, without putting, not going to put school names to it, but if you were to go to a D1 school, play five minutes as a freshman, not really love the location, but you said you played D1 soccer. How fun is that? Is that really worth right, it? Right. Um, conversely, if you're to go to a D3 school, get a fantastic education, maybe you're playing as a freshman. I don't know, let's say your stat line comes out to 12 game played, four starts, you're, you're chipping away, you're, you're growing in the team, like you're a part of something, you're, you feel a little bit more involved. That sounds more appealing to me. That's not to say that it has to be that decision. Every person is going to make their own choice for a multitude of reasons. And frankly, the financial component can be a huge one of, hey, does this school give me a scholarship versus paying full? Like, there, there's so many variables that go into it. But I think, like I said, if anyone's looking solely at that from a club perspective, from a parent perspective as D1 or bus, I, I, I think that's misguided. And like I said, I, I hope there's more openness because, again, it'd be very limiting for the player, for the child, for the young adult, if it's just focusing on that. 
give me the scouting report on Jonathan Siegel, the soccer player. What were the what were the strengths? What were the weaknesses? Oh boy, not big enough, not fast enough. I could be self-deprecating <laughs> to a fault here. But hey, I, I always like setting up other people. I always liked being the assist guy, the guy passing the ball and trying to work hard for the team, not to be cliche about it. But yeah, I mean, I had fun with it. I, I It's a huge part of my life and it always will be. And I tell people all the time, I mean, hey, I get to I get to watch professional soccer for a living and, and write about it and talk to coaches and players. I mean, there are a lot worse things to be doing when I wake up every day. And I don't lose sight of that at all. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> You're right. I mean, being paid to watch professional sport is, is about as good. If you're not going to play that sport, you might as well watch it and get paid for it. So that's. I'll uh, say as an anecdote, there was, we were at MLS All-Star Week not too long ago in Minnesota and uh, we're at practice and the ball comes out to the sideline. And it's that moment of like, <laughs> do I trust myself to pass it back to Carlos Vela right now? Is he going to laugh you off the field? <laughs> like, is, is the coach going to say who the hell is this guy or whatever? So it's, it's, it's funny in those ways because. Yeah, have those moments where the game and the, the desire to play comes out, but hey, you can be quickly humbled too. Ooh, uh, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> so what did you do? Did you pass it back or no? Someone else took the baton from me. I was, uh, there was, there was a moment of group hesitation and we weren't quite sure what to do. A bunch of has-beens watching, just hoping somebody else will step up to the plate. You're gonna love yeah, it. I mean, this is a guy who played for Arsenal. He played at two World Cups for Mexico and you're like, here I am. Hey, I played a hot minute of D3, D3 soccer. I can't even hold weight compared to you, man. Good stuff. Well, Jonathan, I know you're going to get back to your uh, your busy day here, but I appreciate you taking the time and joining us. And this was a great conversation. Definitely. Yeah. And I'll just close with, I know we touched on it. I, I think the openness to D3 soccer is a fantastic topic. And as I mentioned, that kind of long-term, what it can bring about is something that I hope a lot of people take from this. I mean, I think that's the most important takeaway is, is what it leads to. And that's the end of my stump speech for D3 soccer. So thanks, man. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks again to Jonathan Siegel for joining the podcast. I'm Matt Langoni. Thanks for listening. New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast is produced by Steve Safran and is a Siemens Media production. You've been listening to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast or visit anysoccerjournal.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.